Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hello and welcome to Location Matters. I'm Sarah Butler, your host, and today I have a special guest joining us remotely from Queensland. Dr. Karen Joyce is really at the forefront of bringing remote sensing and earth observations education to all people from young people in primary school to high school and university students as well. What's more, she and her husband are also behind the formation of the She Maps Initiative, which is all about encouraging young girls to get excited about STEM subjects. There is so much we can talk about today, Karen, but first of all, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast, and I'd love to start by allowing you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So my name's Karen Joyce. I'm a senior lecturer at James Cook University. And my main interest is in how we can use satellites and also drones and other spatial technologies to map and monitor the environment. And my favourite part of the environment to work in is the Great Barrier Reef, though I do work in other areas as well. Very good. So, yes, I did realise that you are very passionate about the environment when I was reading into you. Has that always been the case for you from a young age or...? You know, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I guess I don't necessarily think that I was so particularly strong about the environment at the time, but on reflection, I can remember when I was about, oh, I would have been about six or seven years old, maybe eight, and I remember I used to, I lived in Canberra at the time and I do remember that there was a, a competition in the Canberra Times to enter a drawing and colouring in competition for the the Don't Rubbish Australia campaign. And I remember actually winning that campaign with with something that I'd drawn and I'm not an artist at all. And I used to to have a T-shirt that I won through that competition and I used to wear that T-shirt absolutely everywhere. And when I first received it, it just about came down to my ankle. So I wore this T-shirt for years and years. That, that particular campaign and I'd completely forgotten about it until uh, the past couple of years or so I guess I've been running a, an activity with my GIS class at JCU where they go and, and pick up rubbish and they map where the rubbish is and I've been trying to get the photo of me at that age wearing that shirt from my mum and she's been digging around trying to find this photo that I know exists to show that actually I probably did care about it when I was very, very young, though maybe not quite so consciously. There, uh, I remember doing so many colouring in competitions. Just hearing you say that, I don't think I've even thought about a colouring in competition in years, but I just remember them being so great and so much fun. I'd love to see the photo if your mum finds it. For sure. And I've got an, a nine-year-old son and he's always going in colouring competitions. So that they're definitely still something that exists that, of course, you don't necessarily think about as an adult. So your passion for the environment started with, uh, with that moment, that pivotal moment in your life living in Canberra. Do you think your interest was peaked in, in science and geography in your formative years as well? Definitely not in geography. So I never studied geography as an elective at school. I guess I probably did it a little bit at primary school if it was part of the curriculum, although I can't remember. I do remember my early thoughts of geography was all about knowing the capital cities of countries, the flags and population, which I found and still particularly find not that interesting. 
And I always think it's interesting if you go to a pub quiz or Trivial Pursuit or any of those types of quizzes and the geography question comes up, people look at me like I'm the one with a PhD in geography and I should know the answers to these questions. (laughs) But it's the same sort of style. It's about flags, population and capital cities and I know nothing of those My brother was actually very good at that, but he's certainly not a geographer now. So, no, I had no interest in geography until I hit university, actually. When you started to blend these things together, you've got the science, environment, eventually geography. This has then led on to you working on such an amazing portfolio of projects. I I noticed you've been doing a lot of work with coral reefs, Great Barrier Reef. You've done some work in Belize. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. So I guess I got into geography as an undergraduate student when I had to decide what science electives I was going to do. So I knew I decided I was going to do a science degree because I did I did enjoy science in high school. And I then chose geography because the, I was at ANU at the time and they were advertising a field trip to the coast as a research station down, down the coast. And I was like, yeah, well, I like the outdoors. I like camping. That sounds great. And that was my only decision for joining geography in the first place but I really enjoyed it from there and at that stage I was I guess I was 18 19 years old and I knew that I wanted to be in Queensland and I thought yeah I'd I'd really like to work on the Great Barrier Reef so I went through the prospectus at University of Queensland and selected every single subject that there was it didn't matter what discipline it was from but whichever subjects would take me up to the Great Barrier Reef Heron Island research station up there and that's how I made my degree up just based on going to the reef because that's where I loved being and yeah and it's still where I love being so it's it's really cool that I get paid now to go to these wonderful places. 100% Queensland weather you know just it's just beautiful it's just a wonderful part of the world. I think it's really cool that you got to, I guess, from a young age, you you kind of knew what you really wanted to to do or where you wanted to be. I think there's a lot of young people who have a hard time figuring that out as well. No, actually not at all. Yeah, I fell into geography because I enjoyed camping. I continued to honours because I couldn't think of anything else that I was really passionate about and I, I enjoyed studying. I continued to PhD for the exact same reason. So I'm definitely not the person to ask about strategic career moves in the in the way that I've chosen where I want to be. But I did want to be somewhere warm and I still want to be somewhere warm. So that's definitely a driver for me. <laughs> that's also very important. Can you tell me a little bit about your transition into teaching? That's probably the one thing that's been in my life from the beginning, to be honest. I, from a very, very early age, I sort of held tutoring type roles, then started up lecturing back in the late 90s. And then I moved away from teaching for formal positions of teaching for before coming back into an academic role in 2010 or the end of 2009 and then back to working with schools in the last three years or so so it has been a has been a continuous process of education at various levels I guess but a a little bit of a circle in terms of the ages that I deal with. I think it's great that you see your your teaching career not just starting at one penultimate moment where you're starting to work but you see it as something that started from a very young age. Do you think that this has influenced the work that you're currently doing with 
trying to encourage young people to follow careers in STEM? Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I think that education and communication is really, really important. I think that the people often undervalue the role of learning how to teach people and how that makes you better in your own profession as well. Because if you have to teach something to a five-year-old child, you really need to know what it is that you're doing to be able to explain it to them. And that actually makes you better at explaining things to adults as well. So it's definitely a big part of what I do is for everything that I teach, actually my now nine-year-old goes through everything that I develop for teaching. So figure out that if, if he can do it, then my university students should be able to do it as well. But I also draw a lot on, on my life in the fitness industry as well. I, I still teach group fitness classes and I'm fortunate that I, I get to do a lot of professional development in that teaching space through exercise. So I probably do more professional development in teaching exercise than I do in teaching geographical concepts actually, but they, they all intermix. They all help each other. So what I, what I learn about teaching at the gym, I then take into teaching school kids, which then evolves how I teach at the university level as well. Going back to your son, I noticed on Twitter that you had him do an, an exercise where he mapped his school. You're encouraging other children to do this as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that initiative? Yeah, for sure. We have a competition going at the moment. It's called Search for the World's Coolest School. And it's a bit of play on words, really, because I think that there's this two aspects of cool. One is the, the traditional aspect being that to be in the shade, it's nice and cool and playing about with the temperature there. And the other aspect is that drones and mapping is cool as well. So what we're looking for in our competition is to get kids to, to map their school and to tell us how cool it is. So it's working out how big their school campus is and what percentage of an area is covered by, by tree shade. This, this is an activity that we've run with kids from a very early age. So, you know, prep or transition, kindergarten, whatever the, the schooling year is, five or six-year-olds or so, as long as they can, they can draw, with, draw with pencils. There's an activity for, for kids there to work out how cool their school is and all the way through to then digitising maps of the schools and then working with Google Earth Engine as well to draw on those calculations, which is building into coding skills as well. And, yeah, we've got kids all over the world of all different ages submitting their entries in and we have 10 drones to give away. So there's definitely an incentive to work out how cool your school is as well. And we've been really fortunate that that's sponsored by a Queensland group called the Surveyors Trust and they're providing the support for us to create those materials but also provide the drones as well. Google Earth Engine is something, just mentioned it, you know, taking the map from paper, drawing skills and then bringing it up to making it digital, which is a really valuable skill to have. I know that it's a lot of what we do at NGIS is on Google Earth Engine, so I think it's really, really cool that you're doing that with young kids. What do you think it is about Google Earth Engine that makes the adoption of it from a young age into to adulthood compared to using other tools in that space? There's definitely... Definitely some challenges, but the, the ease with it is is just the, 
the huge archive of satellite imagery that's within the system that allows you to process data and and process it so quickly as well. I think it's just really phenomenal that you can query through 30 years of Landsat data to extract time series information. And so no longer do we just have to download an image from 1980 and then download another image from last week and then perform an analysis on your proprietary image processing software on your own computer. But it's all done in the cloud, which is fabulous if, you, if you've got decent Wi-Fi. You, know, you don't just have to do just two dates. You can do the whole lot. And I think that's phenomenal and it really starts to get people to understand some long-term patterns and processes rather than just start and finish dates as well. And as far as the kids are concerned, we know that it's part of the Australian National Curriculum that the kids are starting to learn coding at school. And one of the things that we find is that often coding gets taught in isolation from application. And in that, I mean that kids are learning to code, but they don't necessarily know why they're doing it. But Google Earth Engine actually gives us a real life application that people can learn the code to answer some sort of environmental question. And I think providing that link is really, really important for kids to understand why they're doing something and they'll be more engaged in the process when, when they see the, the real product at the end as well. So using some basic skills in JavaScript to be able to do that, I think is, is fabulous to be able to start to get kids in, in high school in particular, but even the, high, the top performing primary school kids can get involved in it as well. How's, how do you think the adoption is with your university students and how they're using it? So we trialled using Google Earth Engine last year in my remote sensing class for the postgraduate students. So in the class, I typically have about 20 to 25 students. It's a pretty small class. And it's often about half-half split between undergraduates, so third-year students, and the postgraduates who are coming in on master's degrees. Usually, both students will work through uh, an intensive week processing data in Envy. But last year, I decided that that we'd give it a crack using Google Earth Engine just for the postgrads. Uh, so that was, that was a challenge having students in the room, half on one piece of software, half on another. But it was really good to get the, to stretch the postgraduate students into a space where they were analyzing data and using coding to do that. As, as a whole, it was, it was very challenging for those students. None of the students that I had last year had actually done any form of, of coding or computer programming before they did that class. So that, that's a steep learning curve to do that part as well as it's the first time they're processing satellite data as well. So definitely a really big learning curve, but the, the sense of satisfaction is, is huge, I think. And for them to be able to walk away knowing that they've got a taste, and certainly by no means experts, um, but they know that they've got a taste of what, what the potential is with the data and those processing skills. And whether or not they go into remote sensing or GIS careers down the track, they still have a taste of those, those coding skills as well, which are really, really highly sought after. And so I think Google Earth Engine is really good for providing that to the students.
it's a really exciting thing to think about that the work that you're doing with starting to embed that Google Earth Engine education at a young age and moving into high school, then moving into university, that if it's starting so much younger, exactly what these kids one day are going to be able to achieve and what kind of world that that could help create for, for the future in terms of the environment. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, most definitely. Like some of, the, some of the students that I work with at the primary and high school level, when I see what they're able to produce, I can't wait till they come to me at university and I hope they come and decide to do geospatial and don't get snaffled up by, by law or medicine or something like that because you see that capability and to have had some of that foundation knowledge at an earlier age to then come to me and I and if I don't need to teach teach those basics at all I can start them at this higher level yeah it'll be it'll be absolutely fantastic hearing you say that reminds me so much of one of my colleagues um, Sam Atkinson who's been on the podcast before and something that he is also incredibly passionate about is teaching these skills to kids because at the moment what he sees in his feedback to us and you know I've had other people um, on the podcast Stuart Finn who you probably know and we've had NASA Servier I've done some work with them before not on the podcast and I hope I can get them on the podcast soon just talking about having to teach these skills at an, an older age so at the university age which you were just saying versus having people coming through the system who actually know how to use them is that there is a huge demand for, for this work and there's really my, the feedback I've received is that there's not a lot of people who have the skills to, to do that work at the moment in terms of Earth observations and analysing satellite imagery. And I can see that from, from hearing what I've heard from my colleagues in the industry, there's a huge appetite for that now. So I think, like you said, if they don't get snatched by law and from medicine as well, that there is going to be a huge amount of opportunity in the future for these kids to do really exciting work in this space. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so Stuart Finn was my honours and PhD supervisor as well. So yeah, I have worked with him a lot over the past 20 plus years. And a lot of what I do with teaching in remote sensing is based on a lot of the stuff that he's taught me as well. But the, the thing that I, I find really, really interesting about how we can how we can get young people interested in geospatial, and I guess not just young people as well as it's just the general community, is that there is a, a little bit of a, a rebrand and education about the education that we need to do as well, I think, because I, I, when I, when I talk, to, talk to people in the community, talk to kids, no one knows the word geospatial. It's definitely a, a bit of jargon that we use amongst ourselves. But 20 years ago, Nobody knew GPS or satellite either. And Google Earth did a huge amount for our industry because now I, I don't need to say um, I work with satellites and people's eyes glaze over. I, I can say I work with satellites like Google Earth and they understand what I mean straight away. And, you know, it's not 100% correct, but at least they're in the ballpark of, of what I'm talking about. And the same with GPS. It's, a, it's an acronym that people don't necessarily know exactly what it means or how it works, but they get what it does and why it does it. So now one of the, one of the areas in which we need to educate people is that geospatial and geography is the really cool discipline that relies on things like GPS and satellites and drones and all the all the technology that 
people are so used to having in their phones and that they rely on as a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis is actually our discipline. And that is really exciting. And it's not just about country flags and capital cities and population centres as well. So it's, it's something I think that we need to, we need to get out there a little bit more and that's a lot of the reason why I work with kids as well because they're the ones that get enthused by this and then hopefully we'll take it on as they go through their own careers. It is really exciting. I, I love watching some of the things that come from my colleagues and I'm very lucky to sit next to a couple of the guys who are using Google Earth Engine on a daily basis and just popping my head over the partition and going, oh, that looks really interesting. What's that? But I think it, you know, it is really exciting and I think that I can, I can see why it would be something that excites a lot of kids. I, I just can't wait to see what happens with kids that are learning these skills now, like I said before, and just seeing what they come up with in the future. I think it's going to be a really, really exciting time. So that leads me really nicely into talking about SheMaps, which is something I have been researching and, and looking into. And I absolutely love what you're doing with SheMaps. It's something at NGIS, bringing more women into careers in in GIS or in remote sensing, what have you, is something that we're very passionate about as well. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about SheMaps from your point of view. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I'll give you a bit of background as to how SheMaps started. To take you back to 2016, the um, theme for National Science Week that year was drones. There's a, a lot of the schools local to me here in Cairns knew that I was using drones as part of my research because it's quite often in the media because it's a sexy thing to be doing, I guess. And so I was contacted by a number of the local primary schools and high schools to come out and talk to their kids for National Science Week. And one of the things that I noticed was that when I went to the primary schools, I had lots of kids really excited. They wanted to know everything about what I was doing, lots and lots of questions. And I could talk to a whole school or I could talk to a class. It didn't matter. Everyone was keen. But then when I went to our local high school, that I didn't even get any girls show up to my talk. And I I spoke to to several of my colleagues, uh, also sort of within science and engineering faculty, and they said that they have similar experiences, that the girls don't come to these things. And so I, I actually applied for some funding through Advance Queensland, and my idea was that I should perhaps run something that was for girls only. And I thought, well, let's let's try and do something that is for girls only. I can I can work with maybe 20 girls for the day and get them flying drones and see how it goes. So I got the funding and went back to the school. I said, let's offer this drone day for 20, for maybe 20 kids. And they came back in 24 hours with 60 girls on a waiting list. At that point, I realised that it wasn't that girls are not interested. It's that girls didn't want to be in the same space working with that technology and something that was a little bit unfamiliar to them when they were with their male classmates. From there, like I had schools from around Australia and and overseas as well asking me if if I would come. So it sort of grew from there and we've now worked with... over about 7,000 students, teachers. We have people running our programs in 12 countries and we're we're constantly working both face-to-face, although not at the moment face-to-face, 
um, but face-to-face programs and then a lot of online training as well to, to help people in the community understand geospatial science because that's the foundation of what I do and how cool that is. But general STEM or science, technology, engineering and math skills through the eyes of what we do with drones. It's been, it's been fabulous. We work with probably about 60 to 70% now of, of the people that we've taught are, are girls, young women. But we work with boys as well. But the difference with what we do is that we'll work with girls by themselves. So we, we don't do a lot of co-ed work. So if we work at a co-ed school, we'll work with girls in the morning, boys in the afternoon, for example. And we get a lot better results doing that. It's awesome. And I think, you, I mean, you must be immensely proud of it. And I think that it's a, a wonderful initiative. I'm really actually excited to see how we could be involved more with that at NGIS. We can talk about that another time, though. We at NGIS, you probably know about this, but we have a a thing called Indigenous Mapping Workshop. And as well as what we do in the space of the support we give, bringing females into GIS careers and and doing a little bit of what we can do to support that, something that we're very passionate about through our work with Winyama is addressing inequality in STEM in other areas. Indigenous Mapping Workshop is one of those. So you can imagine our team's excitement when we saw the SheMap story about Galara McInnes. We, we thought this is just amazing. And for our listeners, Galara is a young Aboriginal girl who is working within the SheMaps program and she's going to be the greatest female. This is in quotes. She's not going to stop until she is the greatest female Aboriginal drone pilot in Australia. How did that make you feel when you, when you saw her just blossoming like that? Yeah, Galara is a pretty cool student. She started with us Back in 2017, I ran a a drone camp. So it was a three-day camp that we ran. We ran two of them in Cairns, two in Darwin and two in Karatha as well. And and part of it being a a girls thing, the other part of diversity that we wanted to tackle at the time was to to really try and get some more Indigenous integration into our programs as well. I'm really conscious that I can't hit every single angle of diversity that I would like to. But having more Indigenous people involved is is really important to us. And Galera joined uh, the the first camp that we ever ever ran, so three days of lots and lots of drone activities. Well, she is an incredibly driven student. She was so serious, really hard to crack a smile, but because she was just so serious about what she she realised she wanted to do and... And then at every single opportunity that we've we've had over the past couple of years, we run we run tournaments where the schools compete against each other in drone activities and stuff. She's always there. She really stepped up at her school to train her classmates so that so that they could compete in the tournament. Um, and then they won one of our tournaments as well. And she came back on the third year as a work experience student to help out as a as a staff member, I guess, in the tournament as well. Um, so it's been really, really cool to see how she's progressed over the years. And she actually wrote that blog for us when she was on work experience with us. And it was just one of the things that I asked her to do to to write about her experiences at school and where she thought drones fit in. But I didn't really give her much more than that. I just kind of let it, left it up to her as to what what she wanted to come up with. And I did not edit a single word on the blog that she wrote. 
It's fabulously written, a really, really good communication piece and really cool to see her reflecting on her own experiences as an Indigenous female student at her school in her community and the sorts of the sorts of prejudices that she's experienced, but how she actually uses that to fuel what, where she wants to be in her career as well. So it's really cool for us to be part of that for her as well. It's definitely really cool. Um, it was a very inspiring story. Like I said, with the work we're doing with Indigenous Mapping Workshop, it was just so promising for us to see that because we actually, um, we find with the curriculum that we teach at the Indigenous Mapping Workshop that drone deploy skills and using drones to map country is something that's very, very popular within a lot of the rural and remote communities that we work with. So some of the ranger programs, for example, really rely on drone mapping and using drones to do what they have to do. So being able to reach these places on country, which is, you know, for some of them just a massive area, which are previously pretty unsafe to go to, they're able to do now with drones. So it was really cool to see, I think, two initiatives in my mind, what we're doing with IMW and then what you're doing with teaching drones to young women. It was kind of cool to see. So I think we should find a way that we can share those stories as well with our Indigenous Mapping Workshop community because I think they'd find it really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I ran a couple of workshops for the Women's Indigenous Network up here in North Queensland as well. I was up in Cooktown and they had women from as far south as North Stradbroke Island, just near Brisbane, from all the different regions and communities came up for for two days of workshops and I and I ran the drone ones for them as well. So that was really cool and really exciting to be involved in something like that. But the other link that you might find interesting is that last year I had a, a master's student who worked on analysing reef drone data in Google Earth Engine. And the idea really being that if we can get some get some scripts and algorithms sorted, then we can analyse data from whatever drone data capture that you have in this freely available Google Earth Engine cloud-based processing. It's, it's definitely an area where I think we can get more and more people into, into working with that rather than using proprietary software. Yeah, definitely. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we, we wrap up is the initiatives that currently exist to really encourage and empower women working in STEM. And I noticed that you've been part of the Homeward Bound program for our listeners. Homeward Bound is an opportunity for women working in GIS, other sciences as well, where they can go on a um, Antarctic voyage. And um, we'll share some links in our podcast. We've had a couple of other podcast guests. So we've had Nat Raisbeck-Brown from CSIRO who does a lot of great work with us with Indigenous Mapping Workshop. And I think every time she comes to our office, she goes over to all of our female GIS analysts and she's always trying to push them to apply. You really need to go on this. So we'd love to see more people from from our neck of the woods participate in that program as well. Did you attend one of the voyages to Antarctica? So I'm part of Homeward Bound at the moment and I should actually be going to Antarctica in November, but we don't actually think that's going to be happening. At oh, it's such a shame. Yeah, it's a it's a real real bummer to be honest, but yeah, hopefully hopefully it will be postponed and that will happen yeah next year or maybe the year after. We don't really know at this stage, but yeah, it's still a fabulous network to be part of as well. We'll keep our fingers crossed for you. So that's all we've got time for for today. Dr. Karen Joyce, thank you 
very, very much for being on our podcast. I think we could have probably kept going for another hour, but it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you. I'm really excited about all the work that you're doing and I can't wait to see what happening for you in the next 12 months or so. I think we should definitely get you back on the podcast again. We can catch up again, but really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to chat and share all sorts of geospatial stories with anyone who actually wants to listen. It's awesome. Thanks. So what we're going to do is actually include some links on our podcast page on the NGIS website where all of our listeners can go to and be linked to some really interesting resources that Karen has mentioned today. So please do head there if you would like more information. If you enjoy our podcast, we do encourage you to keep listening and you can do that by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.